Psalm 119, we began together last week, and uh, we mentioned that, of course, just if you can tell by glance, Psalm 119 ends up giving to us the longest of the 150 Psalms. It also gives to us the longest chapter in the Old Testament, and more than that, the longest chapter in the entirety of the Bible. And of course, what God chooses to give the longest continuous, and I'll use the word continuous because God addresses other topics in multiple places in the scripture, just like this very topic, which is the word of God. But the longest, it seems, continuous flow of one specific topic we find in the entirety of the word of God, and it is in relationship to God's word. And God here for 176 verses exhaustively continues to speak about the glory and the benefits, the value, all the wonderful things that come to us from the Holy Scriptures. And we began to look at that last time together. We mentioned that this was an acrostic psalm, which means that each successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet breaks really into sections, 22 sections in this psalm. And it's 22 sections of eight verses, and each next eight verses begins with the next successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And, of course, they did that when this was composed to really just help with memorization and to recall the different sections of this. Some say that uh, there were requirements of Hebrew children to learn the entirety to memorize Psalm 119. Um, that's impressive. I have trouble memorizing one Bible verse sometimes, let alone 176 verses consecutively. But they say that one of the reasons this was put together in that acrostic format was to help with that recall idea where you would kind of get to the next section. Remember, okay, it, it, it begins with this next letter, and that would kind of help with the recall and the memorization. Uh, would be quite an impressive thing if one was actually able to do that. But we pick up here in verse 41, where the psalmist continues to speak about the, the beauty and the wonderful things of the Word of God. Psalm 119, verse 41, we pick up from last time where we left off. He says, "'Let your mercies come also to me, O Lord.'" and your salvation according to your word. So here is the psalmist cries out for the Lord's mercies. That's that Hebrew word, the unfailing love or the unending compassions of God coming to us uh, by his mercy rendered here. That's that Hebrew word has said there, the unfailing covenant love of God. He says, Lord, let your mercies come to me your salvation, your deliverance, he says, notice, according to your word. So here the psalmist indicates to us that it is through the word of God that deliverance and salvation comes into our lives. Now, that happens in many different ways. It certainly is through the word of God at times that he delivers us from things like sin that is just some struggle with sin. Remember last time we saw in our psalm together where the psalmist said in Psalm 119 verse 9, how can a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to your word? And then he said then in verse 11, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So certainly one of the things God's word saves us from, brings deliverance from, uh, is sin in our lives and struggles with our sin nature or maybe some habit of sin. There are other ways God's word delivers us and brings salvation, maybe from just wrong thinking. 
that we may have from time to time or a wrong attitude. And of course, one of the greatest and most important ways God's word brings salvation to us where we experience his mercy is literally in the salvation of our soul, our conversion, literal spiritual salvation through trusting in our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through the word of God, it is the hearing of God's word and the believing and receiving of the truth of God's word that we experience that salvation. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So again, apart from hearing the word of God, it is impossible to experience salvation from God. And that's why it's so important that the proclamation of God's word be happening in the lives of people because the Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And as we hear the word of God, the the gospel message particularly presented to our soul, that is what triggers spiritual preparation. That's what instigates faith within our heart through the incorruptible seed of God's word being deposited into our heart as we read it or as someone speaks it to us, as we hear the word of God and we hear the truths that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that there's no difference, we're all sinful and guilty before God, that as we hear that God demonstrates his love in this, that while we're yet sinners, that Christ died for the ungodly, and that though the wages of our sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, and that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. It's as we hear, those are verses from God, God's word as we hear those verses those are the things that cause us to avail ourselves and where God's mercies can come to us and as he says here in verse 41 the latter half of it that we experience salvation according to your word to the word of God and what a wonderful thing one of the great benefits of the many benefits is that God's word brings salvation to our souls and allows us to be born again spiritually to become a child of God it goes on in verse 42 to then say so shall I have an answer for him who reproaches me for I trust in your word and take not the word of truth I like that statement the word of truth what a great description of the word of God it's the word of truth in a world of many many lies Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped, he says, put my confidence in, my assurance, my reliance upon, I have hoped in your ordinances. So verse 42 and 43, the psalmist here speaks about how God's word becomes our defense, to have an answer when people begin to reproach us spiritually. And of course, we, we all know that part of the Christian life is persecution. Jesus said, if the world hated me, then the world is going to hate you. The, the disciple is not above the master. And they hated Jesus and they persecuted and attacked Jesus. And as we represent Jesus and walk with Jesus, we're going to experience in our life reproach. There are going to be people in our jobs or in our family who are going to reproach us. You believe that stuff? You're one of those Bible people. And, and what, what did you get caught up into now? And, and there's going to be those reproaches and people who are going to mock and even try and question and, 
criticize what we believe and what is our proper response in those situations. Get into debates and use our human reasoning to do the best we can to try and win over an argument. No, the best defense, Peter says, is that we are able to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. And the best way to do that, the psalmist says right here, through the word of God, verse 42, he says, I shall have an answer for him who reproaches me because I trust in your word, not in my own words to try and debate things with people and let my human reasoning and my intellect somehow dominate and overcome somebody else. But instead, the best defense is to just release the word of God, to use the word of God to give an answer. And you know, you don't even have to at times, my encouragement to you, especially if you want to minimize more of a firestorm and people just shutting you down all the more, uh, you don't have to give chapter and verse reference. You could just quote the word of God and speak the word of God to someone if you have it stored up within you and you just let the word of God be the answer. And as they question this or they mock that on this moral issue or that subject, just speak forth the word of God to them. Just give them the word of God and just let God's word be the defense and become the answer. And let, because listen, as I just quoted from first Peter chapter one, God's words like incorruptible seed. And you sow that incorruptible seed down in someone's soul and they will wrestle with that as they lay on their bed at night and their conscience is at work and God's spirit is watering the seed of his word. And then their argument really isn't with you. Their argument's with God. And much better to just let people wrestle with God and let the word of God speak for itself. You know, we don't even have to try and defend the word of God. It's just releasing it, giving it forth as the answer and trusting in the word. He says, I trust in your word. So Lord, he says, verse 43, don't take the word of truth out of my mouth for I'm hoping in the power of your word. And what a wonderful thing. You know, I don't even have to spend time trying to defend the word of God. I believe it was, it was Spurgeon or Moody. I keep, can't keep track of which one that was from time to time that said, you know, w- with a lion, you don't defend a lion. You just let it out of his cage. Right, so you just you don't have to defend the word of God. You just put forth the word of God. God, just don't take your word out of my mouth. Let the word of your truth, that's what I'm trusting in and hoping and just keep that in my mouth and let me give your word to people and just let them wrestle with the power and the authority of the word of God when they're questioning this or reproaching or mocking that and so forth. He goes on verse 44 to say, and so shall I keep your law continually forever and ever that is a a dedication to wanting to keep the word of god to obey it he says verse 45 and i will walk at liberty the idea is i will live in freedom i'll walk in a liberated way rather than like a slave or in bondage i will walk at liberty for i seek your precepts notice here psalm 119 tells us another beautiful benefit of the word of god is it has a liberating power in our lives. He mentions here in our two verses how he says that his heart wasn't just to hear the word of God. Again, what does James say? Not just to be a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. That is to put it into practice. And James says, if all we do is hear what the word of God says and we give mental assent to it, Right, And we agree with it. And so I can read the word of God on my own and, and I can say, man, that is good. And I, man, I agree with that. That, that. I agree with that. 
But that's vastly different agreeing with it and actually acting upon it and putting it into practice, right? And letting what's in the bonded leather become shoe leather and actually walking it out and keeping it. James says, if we're just a hearer of the word, whether through reading it or hearing it, somebody sharing it with us in a conversation or counsel or hearing it from the pulpit, and if we just hear it, but we don't put it into practice or act upon it, James says, we're actually deceiving ourselves. And I think one of the greatest spiritual deceptions, the longer we're a Christian, is to think just because we know a lot about the Bible that we're actually living it. And it's this very kind of subtle deception that as our knowledge increases of the word of God, and we can maybe even quote Bible verses, and we know a lot about the word of God, but that's vastly different than actually living out the word of God and keeping it. And James says, it's like looking into a mirror When you get up in the morning and seeing what a real mess you really are, apart from painting and fixing and brushing and grooming and making it look nice before you go in public and seeing yourself like that and going, whoa, that really needs some change before I go out the door. But then just walking out the door and never fixing your hair or doing the things that change what you saw in the mirror. God's words like a mirror. It reflects to us what is true about ourselves in relation to what God, who is the God of truth and a God of wisdom and love says to us is true. But if we don't act upon it, it does nothing for us. However, if we do act upon it, if we do obey by faith the scriptures and put it into practice and say, Lord, help me to walk this out, to not just hear the truth, but as the New Testament says, to walk in truth, he says, I shall keep your law continually. And if we keep his law, we obey it and we live out the word of God and we make an endeavor to do that. He says, as we're doing that, he says, verse 45, then I will walk at liberty. You know, th- there is nothing more wonderful than to live a life. And none of us, you know, bats 100%, if that's what the best batting average is. I don't even know. You catch my concept there. None of us are ever going to perfectly live out the word of God. We know that, but at least to make a conscious endeavor to try and live according to the word of God, to walk out what we're learning in the scripture, it liberates us from so much junk in our lives, so much drama, so much unnecessary heartache, right? And regret and bondage and slavery to this and to that and to these sinful practices and you know these feelings of depression and anxiety and all these things that people get so entrapped in and people are living like prisoners and many of us lived that way at one time and is it not true that when you came to jesus and you started reading and living out the word of god on your own was it not very liberating all of a sudden you start to get liberated from things in your life and you're going, this, this is wonderful. I'm not a slave anymore. I'm a servant of a master, but he's a good master and I obey him because I want to, but man, I'm liberated. I've been liberated from things in my life. And he says, I get to walk at liberty because God's word has a very liberating, freeing effect in our lives. If we seek his precepts to walk in his precepts we get to walk in liberty and what a wonderful thing to have god's word set us free to live in freedom over things and live at liberty in your life rather than always be struggling and wrestling again the new testament infers the same thing when james was speaking about the word of god in james chapter 1 verse 25 he said there whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty the idea is a law that gives freedom and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. 
I love that statement that James, as the Holy Spirit was directing him, called the word of God the law of liberty. The law of liberty. A lot of times when people think about laws, they don't think about liberty, right? Oh, laws. This law is going to restrict me and control me. It keeps my life in a boundary. It tells me you can't do this. And we hear the word law and our mind instantly goes to, oh, structure, rules, controls. And yet the Bible, the Holy Spirit tells us, is a law of liberty. It is a divine law given to us from God that gives us healthy, proper boundaries to live out our lives God's way, to do our marriages God's way, to do living God's way in such a way where we don't become enslaved to horrible, ruinous, self-destructive things in our lives. It's a governing law that actually makes us more liberated. It liberates us from sin. It liberates us from so many struggles and things that destroy so many human lives. What a wonderful blessing of God's word. It has a liberating effect as it works in our lives and we obey it. He then goes on to say, going on, verse 46, and I will speak of your judgments before kings and not be ashamed. So the psalmist here describes of having boldness because of his confidence in the word of God. And he says, Lord, I want to speak your word. Don't take it out of my mouth. So I'll have an answer. He says in our verses above verse 42 and 43. Now here, as he gets to verse 46, apparently he was so confident in the power and value of God's word that he says, you know what, God, I will even speak your word. He says before Kings and before the idea is leaders and rulers, people of great power that could intimidate the Psalmist. And he says, I will do such and speak before Kings and I will not be ashamed. The idea is if there's anything I'm willing to speak with boldness and take the risk with, it's God's word (laughs) because that has value to it. And so he says, I don't care if it is the commoner on the street, the guy just like me, or if it is the highest ranking king and the person who's ruling over the whole empire, I'm not showing partiality to anybody. And you know what, folks? Neither should we. The gospel message is the gospel message, whether you are talking to a five-year-old, whether you're talking to somebody who's in your mind on the same level as you societally and where you're at in a social class or whatever that may be, or whether you are speaking to somebody who is a high-ranking, high-profile, mover, shaker, power person, king, president, whatever, it's the same gospel. Everybody's got to struggle with sin. Everybody needs Jesus Christ. The word of truth is the word of truth. Again, remember John the Baptist? That was what actually got him in trouble because John the Baptist wasn't afraid to tell the political leader of that time, Herod, what are you doing? You have your brother's wife. That's perverted, disgusting. It's adultery and it's incest. Now he lost his head for it, so keep that in mind. But (laughs) that's the idea there. He wasn't going to be ashamed. God's word was God's word. And he was willing to just put it out there without partiality because, again, he wanted to uphold and honor the word of God rather than be ashamed of God and his word in front of other people. And the psalmist here speaks of the importance of doing that thing. He says, verse 47, and I will delight myself. And again, that word delight, the idea is when you delight yourself in something, you find enjoyment. So he says, I will delight myself in your commandments. Actually, find enjoyment, delight, in your commandments, which I, notice, here's the descriptive word, love. 
My hands, I will lift up to your commandments. The idea is in surrender or wanting more, give more, God, which I love and I will meditate, think upon, take time to contemplate and mull over to really draw out everything I can. I'll meditate on your statutes. Now, notice here, as the psalmist continues to speak about the word of God, he refers verse 47 and 48 here. He uses the word commandments regarding God's word. And notice two times he repetitiously says regarding God's commandments, he says, which I love. Now, again, that that kind of sounds a little bit contradictory to our natural, rational thinking, right? Loving commandments, loving people to command, to tell you what to do. Typically, we don't want somebody to give us commands and tell us what to do. But he says, when it's God, I love when God commands me. I love when God tells me exactly what to do and commands me not to do. He says, I love your commandments. I love this beautiful picture here. It reminds me of, you know, what John says, the apostle, John, the apostle in first John chapter five there, where he talks about that love for God is attached to keeping his commandments. And then he says of, of God's commandments, first John five, three, his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. Now, again, that's what makes God's commandments so different than human commandments because you don't have to question, is there some perverse agenda behind that commandment? Is this person just trying to boss me around? Are they trying to abuse their authority? Are they going to give me a command that's not good for me or beneficial or or help? You don't ever have to worry about that. If God's commanding you to do something, he is a good, benevolent, all-wise, all-knowing father. And anything God commands you to do, it's for your welfare. Anything God commands me not to do, it's good and it's for my welfare. And so therefore I can say, Lord, your commandments aren't difficult. They're not hard to bear. They're they're good commandments. In fact, I love when you command me what to do because, Lord, then I don't have to worry if I'm doing what's right or wrong. Just I love when there come places in the Bible, though it may be hard to swallow or hard to submit. I love when God just point blank tells me this is the way it is. Thanks, Lord. I'm, I'm not a rocket scientist. Simplicity is my best friend. Just state it the way it is. Got that. Maybe hard to do, but if it's the right thing and you're commanding me to act this way or not act this way, Lord, I love that. Just tell me what exactly you want from me and as a servant, just to submit to what the master is asking. But again, here's this beautiful reminder again. Would to God that my heart could say what the psalmist says here. I love the word of God. That's what he's saying. I love the word of God. May God give us a greater love for his word. Jesus said, remember in the gospel of John, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. The idea is keeping the commandments of God is one of the primary ways we show Jesus that we love him. I want to show Jesus how I love him, don't you? And he says that one of the primary ways we can show him that we love him. There are many different ways to express love, just like in human relationships. But one of the primary ways we can show Jesus we love him is when we come to a command from God that we say, I'm going to obey this over my reasoning, over my feelings. I'm just going to obey that because I want to show you I love you, Lord. So I'm going to deny myself and I'm going to obey this. Verse 49, he goes on into the next section here to say, remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me 
to hope. Now, when he says, remember the word to your servant, again, he's speaking in a, a prayerful tone here. It's not as if God forgets things, right? He's not saying, God, did you forget? God can't forget anything. God knows everything. So he's not saying, God, you've forgotten. The idea here where he says, remember the word to your servant, the idea is he's saying, Lord, would you call to mind and act upon your word? Lord, Lord, would you fulfill, would you bring to pass the word, that timely word or that maybe promise, maybe the, the psalmist had received some promise from the Lord. He had spoken some word, whether it was just a personal word that was a promise to the psalmist or maybe something in the scripture specifically. He's saying, Lord, would, would you act upon your word upon which you've caused me to hope? So apparently the psalmist had been hoping, trusting with assurance, Lord, you gave me a word about this. Lord, I, I know that was a word from you. Lord, you gave me this promise. You spoke this to me in your word. It just came off the page and it stuck to my heart. I, that is a word from the Lord. And sometimes when we're reading the scripture, that's what happens. Or maybe through a prophetic word or just some timely word or a promise we come to. And, and now we're hoping in that word. Lord, I, I, my hope is that you're gonna bring this to pass. I believe it. And here the psalmist is just praying, Lord, he's saying, I've been, been hoping in this. You've caused me to hope in this. Now, please do it, Lord, please fulfill it. Bring it to pass. Call it to mind. This is my comfort, he says, verse 50, in my affliction for your word has given me life. The proud have hold me in great derision. So it seems, again, he was dealing with difficulty among men, the proud, the arrogant were causing him to be in great derision, uh, derision. Yet I do not turn aside from your law. I remembered your judgments of old and have comforted myself. So again, here the psalmist speaks of how God's word brings about a comforting ministry in our lives as well. He says in verse 50 here, in the midst of my affliction, so whatever that affliction was, some pain, some trouble, some difficulty. It could have been because of the proud and people who were treating him cruelly or hurtful things that had been said to him. And, and he's, in, he's in infliction, he's suffering. And notice he says, in the midst of my affliction, where did his comfort from? The word of God. That as he went to the word of God, God's word was like a healing balm, like a medicine that comforted him in the midst of his affliction. And God's word can do that. Romans 15 specifically says, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures. One of the ministries of the word of God is it brings comfort to our souls at times. That as we're afflicted or we're in pain or we're suffering in some ways, we go to the word of God. It has this powerful comforting ministry. He mentions in verse 52 there again, that he remembered the judgments of old and I've comforted myself. Lord, I found comfort in your word in a time when I was in great pain and affliction. Because he says, verse 50, it was your word that has given me life. Notice the life-giving power of the word of God. And that's one of the things that God's word does. And the reason why is because God's word is infused with the very life of God. This book is not like any other book that exists on planet earth. It may be typed with you know, black ink on white paper and, and look like any other book from a printing press, 
But this book, unlike any history book, any science book, any book that's been written, this book is, is inspired by the very spirit of God himself. There is supernatural DNA encoded within the word of God, whereby Hebrews 4.12 tells us what? The word of God is living, it's alive. Well, I don't hear a heartbeat in it. What do you mean it's alive? Well, it's alive because the life of God has been breathed into it. It's spiritually inspired, the words. And so the life of God has been breathed into his word. Therefore, Hebrews 4.12 says, it is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, judging the thoughts and intents of our heart. And here the psalmist speaks of the life-giving power of the word of God. He says, Lord, your word has given me life. Literally, it infuses life into me. Again, when you're afflicted, when you need comfort, when you're hurting and dying on the vine, isn't it a wonderful thing to come to the word of God and read it and the life-giving power of God's word infuses you once again and renews your spirit and renews your mind and the power of God's word in a wonderful way has a beautiful effect in our lives to minister to us. Verse 53, he says, an indignation... And the idea there is righteous anger. And what was it over? Indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. So the psalmist was dealing with righteous anger because of what? Rebellion against the righteous ways of God. He says, indignation has gripped me because of the wicked around me who are forsaking the law of God. That is, as he lived in the world, kind of like Lot, remember the New Testament says Lot was vexed in his righteous spirit as he was there in the area of Sodom. And, and I think as righteous people, we experience that, right? We love God's word. We, we love God and his ways. And, and so therefore, it's a struggle to watch people who are living wickedly and who are forsaking the law of God and putting God's word behind their back and doing everything they can aggressively to contradict the word of God and to twist God's standards and, you know, pollute morality and change this and change that. And, and that causes, like the psalmist says here, a degree of sort of righteous indignation within us as we see people rebelling against the word of God. That's a natural experience. In some ways, we don't want to respond wrongly to that, but it's an indication that our heart's in the right place because it upsets us, it vexes us within when we see people taking what would be the best for society, if we observed God's word and lived God's way as people, and they're just twisting and forsaking that, and we realize this is going to just shipwreck humanity. This is just destroying people and destroying children when we set aside God's word. And it should, to some degree, cause an indignation within us. He says, verse 54, and your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. And I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. And this has become mine because I kept your precepts. So the psalmist here speaks of how, notice the statutes of God's word had literally become, he said, my songs. That is taking the word of God and setting it to melody, to music. And isn't it wonderful, you know, how over the ages that different people given gifts by the spirit have been able to take truths from the word of God and set them to music. 
You know, Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me, cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord. And again, taking the actual word of God, the statutes of scripture, and putting them into songs and being able to express them as acts of worship unto the Lord or just taking truths and concepts. You know, sometimes when we sing worship songs, it may not be the exact scriptures themselves, but I would encourage you, and and the more you become familiar with God's word, sometimes as you're singing a worship song, you realize, man, the, the very truths we're conveying in this song, they come from that passage right there. They come from those Bible, oh my goodness, that's expressing that passage just in a sort of a a poetic, creative way. And here the psalmist says, Lord, your statutes, they become so important. They've now become my songs. I find myself singing your word and lifting it up to you in the house of my pilgrimage. And that's what we're doing spiritually. We're on a pilgrimage journeying on this earth. And he says, Lord, I even find myself remembering your name in the night, kind of like you know, Paul and Silas there in the prison in the book of Acts, remember? And it says literally they started praying and singing hymns in the middle of the night. And all the other prisoners were thinking, you guys have lost your mind. You're in prison. Did you forget that? But they had the joy of the Lord, right? And so they just started singing worship in the darkest hour of the night because their hearts were filled with those things. Verse 57, he says, and you are my portion, O Lord. And again, your portion is what? That which satisfies you. That which nourishes you, gives you what you need. When, when, when my wife's dishing out food, you know, she, you know, as she was raising, you know, the kids and myself, it was amazing how she, she almost kind of knew what portions went on what plate and who could eat that much. And so your portion, that's the amount you're allotted. So your portion is that which should satisfy you, which is sufficient for you. And notice he says here, Lord, you are my portion. That's important. Lord, you're my portion. The thing that satisfies me, the thing that brings me inner contentment and fulfillment, ultimately, Lord, it's you. It's not something I do. It's not something I partake of. It's not a relationship or what I get from another person. Lord, you, you're my portion. You're what I need to fulfill me as a person, to satisfy me as an individual. You are my portion, O Lord, and I have said, therefore, I will keep your words. I entreated your favor, he says, verse 58, with my whole heart. Be merciful to me, Lord, according to your word. Verse 59, he seems to be indicating now as the word of God brought corrective measures into his life look what he says i thought about my ways and i turned my feet to your testimonies i made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments so the psalmist indicates here how the word of god became something that revealed to him that which was wrong in his life and then also was what prompted him to say i have got to get off of my way or the world's way, and get back on God's way. Again, the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, useful, valuable for what? Reproof, correction, training in righteousness, and then he begins to describe. But again, what's the first things he says? Reproof. What's reproof? Reproof is when someone challenges you for doing what's wrong. That's reproof. And he says, God's word, it reproves us. 
it confronts us and says, Tony, your attitude's wrong. What you said was wrong. The way you behaved was wrong. The way you're doing this in your life right now, that's wrong. It reproves us, but God doesn't just reprove us. His word also then corrects us. That is, it becomes the very thing that God shows us what's wrong, but then he doesn't say, there, I showed you what's wrong. See, you're always wrong. And just leave us feeling horrible about being wrong. God says, I show you what's wrong, and then I show you how to correct it. His word also corrects us. And that word correct, literally in the Greek there, speaks of taking something that's fallen over and setting it back up in its rightful place. And that's what God's word does. It reveals to us what's wrong, and then it helps us correct course correct and get back on track and this is what the psalmist is referring to here when he says i thought about my ways and then i turned my feet back to your testimonies because as he thought about his ways he realized you know as i'm thinking about my ways i think i'm off track a little bit here i don't think this is the way god's word would tell me to behave right now or the way God's word would tell me to be going right now and so he says i turned back to the ways of god yeah i just i realigned my life with scripture I recalibrated my life to get back to the ways of the word of God. He says, I thought about my ways. I turned my feet. And again, that's, that's the choice part there. That's called repentance, where we choose to turn. God won't turn me. He'll give me the grace to turn. He'll prompt me to turn. He'll give me the power to do it. But I have to cooperate with God and be the one who turns my ways, going back towards the ways of God. And notice the other thing, when we know that we're heading down the wrong way and God's word wants us to turn back to the ways of God, he says, verse 60, I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. Very, very important. The psalmist said, when I realized I was going the wrong way, I did not waste time. With haste and quickness, as soon as possible, I didn't delay about getting back to keeping the commands of God. He says, verse 61, the cords of the wicked have bound me, but I have not forgotten your law. The cords of the wicked speak of kind of tying someone up to draw them away, kind of how they remember they bound Jesus to lead him away to the cross, evil men who wanted to crucify our Lord. And here he says, the cords of the wicked, Lord, I feel like that people have tried to bind me up and they're trying to pull me away. They're trying to lead me into sin, right? And that happens whether it's maybe people we work with or people we're interacting with. And sometimes kind of slowly and subtly we find we're kind of getting drawn away and they're trying to lead us into sin or into something that we shouldn't do. But notice he says, but I've not forgotten your law. He took his stand on the word of God. He says, they were trying to lead me into sin, but I recalled the word of God. I didn't, and I said, whoa, 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 I, I, I can't go that way. I can't do that. And because he remembered the word of God, it kept him from being led away into further error by the ungodly and the wicked who were trying to draw him into wrongdoing. He says, at midnight, I will rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous judgments. And I am a companion of all who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, he says, is full of your mercy. Teach me your statutes. Notice his companionship, verse 63, was with those who fear God, those who respect and reverence God, and those who kept God's precepts. So he says, my companions, those who I make my companions, are those who love and fear and respect God and those who keep the word of God. Very, very important. 
Certainly should we try and win people to Christ that don't know Jesus and interact with them to try and bring them to the Lord? Yes, however, we have to be very careful who we keep companionship with and who our fellowship is with. And we have to select that carefully. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good character or good morals. And so here the psalmist says, my companions are those who fear God and who keep his precepts. He says, verse 65, you've dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. And I think any servant of God could agree with that. Lord, you have dealt well with me according to your word as I've honored you. You have honored my life and you've dealt so well with me, Lord, according to what your word says as I've sought to live that way. So therefore, he says, verse 66, teach me good judgment and knowledge for I believe your commandments. I love the prayer of the psalmist there. Teach me, Lord, I wanna have good judgment, not bad judgment, right? We've all done the bad judgment thing before. Where does that turn out? When we're in ignorance, using bad judgment, we get off track. So he says, Lord, please give me good judgment. And notice, where does good judgment come from? Believing God's word. Good judgment comes from believing God's word. That is believing God's word over your own human reasoning. Typically, bad judgment stems from believing human reasoning and using our own logic or the patterns of the world rather than believing God's word is right and accurate instead. So he says, Lord, help me to believe your word rather than the words of men or the ideas of my own mind so that I can have good judgment in the way that I live. He says, verse 67, because I was afflicted, or before, excuse me, I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good, he says, and you do good. And that's always important to remember, especially when you're being afflicted in some way. Teach me your statutes. For the proud have forged a lie against me. Again, we see that he was suffering to some degree, mistreatment. People were lying against him. They were doing things to hurt him. But he says, I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Their heart, he says, is as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. The idea is fat as grease there seems to be kind of just a way of poetically saying their heart is not healthy. When you have a heart that's fat as grease, typically grease and fat are not good things for your heart, right? So he's saying, Lord, their heart's not healthy, but I delight in your word. And it's good for me. Notice he comes back to the same concept again. It is good for me that I've been afflicted that I may learn your statutes. Now take notice here, verse 67, as well as in verse 71, he kind of encapsulates this this thought kind of repetitiously here about that it actually in his mind was something he saw as beneficial or good that he had been afflicted in a way whereby it brought him back to a greater commitment to keeping the word of God and learning the word of God in his life. Now, when he says here, verse 67, before I was afflicted, it could be that he's talking about being afflicted just by the trials of life, right? We've seen multiple times in the Psalm. He mentions it even in some of these verses right here that we just read together, the idea of people hurting him, mistreating him, lying about him, doing cruel things in the way they were treating him. So perhaps he was afflicted with pain and heartache and struggling and suffering because people had hurt him. 
Maybe he was dealing with affliction because of just life trials generally, right? To some degree, we all go through different life trials. We go through physical afflictions, health sufferings. We go through hardships, suffering, grief, loss of loved ones. There are many different ways we can go through trials and hardships and deal with affliction and pain. And sometimes we also go through affliction because we bring self-inflicted trials upon ourselves by our own sinful actions and wrongdoings, right? So I think whatever form of affliction, the psalmist doesn't specifically say, the same applies. Whether we're suffering affliction and pain because of things people have done to us, because we're just going through a life trial that's painful and hard right now, or whether we're going through our own personal affliction as the consequence of our own self-inflicted problems from sins and things that we've done he says what i did learn was this the psalmist declares verse 67 before i was afflicted i sensed i was kind of going astray a little bit i sensed i kind of was getting a little bit complacent spiritually i was kind of wandering a little bit when everything was calm and cool and comfortable and and i was doing fine i kind of put it in cruise control a little bit spiritually i know you've never done that but the psalmist did and he said, I kind of sensed I was, I was kind of starting to go astray a little bit spiritually. But he says, but boy, when the affliction came, when the heat turned up, when some pain came into my life, boy, doesn't pain, one man said, pain is like God's megaphone. Isn't it amazing when a little bit of pain or a whole lot of pain comes into our life, how pain awakens us and it awakens our senses and it makes us alert and attentive in a way unlike ever before. And he says, before I was afflicted, I was going astray. But now that I've been afflicted, now I find myself keeping your word. I find myself returning to your word because I'm so desperate. Saying, God, if you don't help me and you don't show me in your word, God, I, just, I can't deal with this. This hurts too much. It's too hard. And it brought him to a place where it got him seeking the word of God more. It gave him a greater commitment to want to obey God's word, to have God's help to navigate the painful affliction. He says in verse 71, same idea. It's good for me. Hard to say that, but that's a spiritual truth. He says, it's actually good for me that I've been afflicted, that I would learn your statutes. God, it was the affliction when it came into my life that became a good thing because it got me hungry to learn your word. Boy, is that not true? Let a little pain come into my life. Let a little hardship come into your life. And all of a sudden, in a way like never before that time when the pain and affliction came, all of a sudden we had this aroused hunger within us to learn the word of God. God, you got to speak to me. And we find our face back in the word of God. And we are searching the word of God because we want to hear from God. And we want God to speak to us. And it has this wonderful benefit. Nobody likes pain. But the psalmist with maturity could say, you know, that Lord, sometimes you let affliction in our life for good reasons. And remember that God doesn't waste a trial and God will let us sometimes suffer in some ways in our physical humanity to do things to benefit our soul and to help us spiritually and to get us serious about the word of God, because that's what brings the greatest value. And how do I know that? Because God says it. Look at verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. He says, Lord, the most valuable thing in my life is not amassing thousands 
of coins of gold and silver and greater riches and more material benefits. He says, Lord, the law of your mouth, hearing you speak to me from your word. He says, Lord, that has become to me better than all the money that's out there. It has way more value. It has enriched my life in much greater ways. And you know, the word of God indeed does have an incredible value. There are riches that can be found in the word of God that outweigh human riches, earthly riches, monetary resources above and beyond. What a wonderful thing to have your life enriched by the word of God, to have the value of knowing God and knowing his will and living according to his ways. And the psalmist says, boy, I'll take that affliction. Wasn't enjoyable, but, but God, I'll take that affliction any day because I found something more valuable on the other side of that. It made me get into your word and learn your word and it enriched my life in much better ways. Verse 73, he says, and your hands have made me and fashioned me. So now he's speaking about God as creator. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. So notice here, the psalmist speaks how God created him, fashioned his life. And he said, Lord, since you've created me and fashioned me, you therefore as my creator and my owner, I need to learn your way because you made me. You fashioned me a certain way. You made me a certain way as a human being. So therefore, in light of that, he says, give me understanding that I can learn your commandments. And what he's reminding us here is that if God is our creator, just like somebody that creates an automobile, they also create that little book that you reference every once in a while in your glove compartment, right? It's called the what? Owner's manual. And the owner's manual is what you reference when something's not working right or you're trying to figure out how something works or the way something's supposed to work properly. And, and look, God's created us. He's our owner and God's given to us an owner's manual. God fashioned my life and designed and created your life a certain way to function as a human being. And God gave to us an owner's manual. And this is the owner's manual. And the psalmist says, Lord, since you made me and fashioned me, Give me understanding from your owner's manual how to do life, how to live life the right way and to correct what's wrong in my life, to reference God's word as that owner's manual for living. He says, verse 74, those who fear you will be glad that as you reverence God, it'll bring more joy into your life. When they see me because I have hoped in your word, they'll see God that my hope in your word has made me a better man. It's made me a Better woman, they'll see that about my life. I know, he says, verse 75, O Lord, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness, he comes back to the subject, you have afflicted me. So notice his confidence. Lord, he even says there, verse 75, you afflicted me. So the psalmist was able to swallow down the reality, Lord, you afflicted me. Now again, whether the Lord afflicted him as the natural consequence of his sin. The Bible says, Hebrews 12, whom he loves, he disciplines, he chastens us, right? Sometimes God will afflict us when we're in sin and on a wrong path to get our attention, to spank us kind of spiritually, to get us back on path. Sometimes God will afflict us and that he will allow affliction, pain, health issues, sorrow, grief, hardships. He'll let those things come into our lives. Sometimes by the sovereign hand of God, God will allow people, 
to have a, a painful influence upon our life. And in his sovereign control over things, he will give a permitted opportunity for us to suffer through something, even as we experience some of the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus. As people treated Jesus wrongfully and hurt him and wounded him, to some degree, we go through the same. And he says, Lord, you've afflicted me. You've allowed this to come into my life. But he says, I know, Lord, that it was in your faithfulness. And he says, and your judgments are right. And, you know, I think the more mature that we become spiritually, the more we should be able to say when affliction comes into our life, Lord, I'm not going to question your judgment on this matter. Lord, you've allowed this affliction, this suffering, this pain to come into my life. You are faithful and you are a righteous God. And so, Lord, I'm not going to question your judgments. I am going to trust by faith. Even if I don't understand the pain and the affliction, I'm going to trust that your judgment was right on this. And somehow, Lord, I'll see how it will work together for the good. He says, verse 76, let I pray your merciful kindness be my comfort. According to your word, to your servant, let your tender mercies come to me that I may live. For your law, he says again, same thing, is my delight. And let the proud be ashamed. Lord, let them be embarrassed and ashamed as they rebel against your word in contrast to what that outcome is to me who observes your word. Let them be ashamed. For they have treated me wrongfully with falsehood, but I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear your name turn to me, those who know your testimonies, and let my heart be blameless. The idea there, blameless, means not necessarily perfect or without any wrongdoing. The idea is blameless is no basis to be blamed. The idea there is when someone is blameless, there's no basis for guilt if an accusation is launched against them. People may launch accusations, but the idea is the accusations don't stick. The person may be blamed for something, but they end up being blameless because when the mud is slinged, it just falls right off because there's no basis for conscious wrongdoing or no evidence of guilt going on, he says, that I may not be ashamed. Now, notice with me, if you would, before we conclude, we'll wrap up here. The psalmist says, verse 78, they've treated me wrongfully with falsehood. So he's been hurt. He's been wounded. He's been abused. He's been mistreated, right? And when that happens to us, what do we typically want to do? Well, you're nicer than me. You know what you want to do. You want to react, right? You want to put on the gloves and get, and you want to react when somebody's hurt you and done you wrong. But look what the psalmist says. He says, but I don't react. I will meditate on your precepts. How did the psalmist navigate painful mistreatment? He pondered the precepts of the word of God so that he would respond appropriately which is another way of saying responding biblically, not just reacting in our humanity. What a great safeguard to be able when we go through hurtful things to go to the word of God and to just meditate, Lord, what does your word say? How should I respond to this? And it safeguards us from doing things that bring blame upon us and cause us to be ashamed in the long run. Well, let's stand.